All right, welcome everybody. Uh, this is Margaret and this is the 4B show with me. Today, I have an awesome lineup of folks to talk about the lack of trust in media, tech, business, politics. It's a gigantic thumbs down to everybody um, that you can list. Um, I wanna make a quick note before I um, introduce my fellow panelists. Uh, we are recording the show, so if you want to ask a question later, you're agreeing to us recording the show and using that because we run these podcasts, we run these shows as a podcast later on our A16Z live channel. So please know that this is being recorded. But now I want to welcome Richard Edelman, Emily Chang, and Helena Mouse. Richard, how are you doing? Just great. Thank you for Good. having me. Well, thank you for giving us the excuse to get together. It's been way long overdue. Um, Richard, do you want to give us just the Twitter version, like the tweet version of this report that you dumped today that you put out, it's like what, 50 pages? It's a lot. Yeah, look, um, the most important fact is that uh, media is the least trusted institution in the world and uh, it's uh, being seen as uh, biased, politicized, uh, chasing clicks uh, that um, in the United States, uh, Biden voters actually trust the media, like 55%. Trump voters, 18% trust in media. Uh, and that's probably predictable. And this is a long, slow descent for media. Uh, mainstream media fell significantly over the last two years. Social media has continued its demise in the Western countries. It's now in the 20s in terms of trust. But and yesterday, so, you were also telling me that tech has yeah, dropped in trust, right? Let's correct, just, let's just distribute the wealth here, not have, yeah, yeah, let Emily okay. have all of it. Okay, so the um, reality for tech is that um, it has been the leading institution in trust for the entire 20 years we've done this study. Uh, and there are significant cracks in the edifice, uh, especially in the United States, where uh, tech went from number one to number nine uh, of all sectors uh, down there with retail, manufacturing, energy, the same score as the energy industry. That's incredible. Interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. All right, Emily. Food, food, and, food and health are at the top. There you go. Um, what people need to eat, particularly in a pandemic. Emily, what do you make of this? You're a very hardworking journalist. I've known you forever. You do a good job. Like, so are you going like, what the F? Well, first of all, Richard, I'm curious. Do you break down the media? Because, you know... Fox News and CNN and MSNBC and Bloomberg, they're all very different beasts. And of course, there's, you know, plenty of plenty of different kinds of media. How do you break it down? Well, we break it in four parts and it's uh, the search, it's uh, social, it's uh, mainstream and it's owned. And mainstream is all of you of the brand names. Um, social is the obvious. And social is 25 points or 30 points less than mainstream, okay. But mainstream is now, you know, only trusted by 50% of uh, Americans all in. Well, if you look at mainstream and you compare headlines from, you know, five years ago to today, you'll be shocked by what the same outlet will, how it's changed, I think. Helena, is this the full-time employment act for you? Because you're, you're, you're working with both sides, with yeah. both tech clients and with media and go like, okay, I can't yeah. trust either of you, but I'll, I'll help you out. <laughs> right. Well, I, look, I think I think it's really interesting, um, you know, to, to, to talk about both of these things together, because if you think about why the trust in tech is falling, 
I mean, look, a big reason for that is because good reporters are doing well-researched stories that reveal the truth. Um, and so it's it, like to say in the same breath that like people trust the media less, but they also trust the uh, trust tech less. Like those things are actually interconnected. Um, and I and I and I do feel that you know good reporters have done. Um, an excellent job of making bad actors feel nervous about about what they're doing. You know, with great power comes great responsibility, as they say. Um, and I think this kind of philosophy that has pervaded Silicon Valley for so long, you know, the not to be trite, but the whole kind of move fast, break things is now irresponsible behavior because we're living in a world in which every company is a is a tech company in in some way, shape, or form. Um, but I, look, I think. Uh, the press has a really important role here to play um, with with technology companies and you know holding them to task for things that 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 they do um, you know that that are tr troublesome frankly um, and so we try to be really thoughtful about the companies that we work with and you know making sure that our values are aligned and I think we're we're not alone in that. Um you know, I would say as a member of the media, um, it's definitely disheartening and, you know, in some ways devastating to hear that that's how people feel. I don't think the media is one sort of monolithic beast, obviously. Um, no, there's tech at some point. <laughs> um, you know, but I would say to echo Helena's point, as a journalist, and I see a lot of fellow reporters in the audience, some of my colleagues in the audience, people, um, um, you know, who I've worked with to, to cover the uh, tech uh, very closely over the years, most of us journalists, I believe, are trying to tell the truth. Um, we're not trying to put out inaccurate information. And um, I, I do generally believe that intentions are good. Now, is that enough? Absolutely not. I mean, if, you know, you think about Facebook and, and Mark Zuckerberg, uh, you know, I think it's incumbent upon him to think of uh, the, the consequences of his actions, not just uh, his intentions. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do believe that According most to the New York Times, intent doesn't do matter. <laughs> Sorry, I was kidding. But according to New York Times, intent doesn't matter. You hear that? Exactly. So it's, not Rich it's certainly not enough. But, um, you know, I, I do believe that most reporters are just trying to do their job. Now, of course, there's, you know, how the story is told and how the story is disseminated. Um, but it's not because of, of some sort of um, devious desire to take down a company or report something that's untrue. It's, it's just it's just folks on the hunt um, for the real story. Well, I, you know, I would add to that, Emily, um, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and, you know, I think um, it would be interesting to look at some of the research that's been done and almost do kind of audience segmentation, too, about sort of like, I know you did it all along political lines, Richard, but, you know, the, the kinds of um, people that these companies are, are trying to attract, um, you know, and, and, and speak to, you know, it, it is perhaps doesn't represent everyone in the world. Um, but but I look, I think the, the days of taking a step back, I think there was a long time where tech could do no wrong, right? Um, and where every move that a tech company made um, was sort of gushed over. Um, you know, that I think that era of the tech darling, those days are done. It's not enough to be a tech company company. Um, you know, you have to be, I think, in order to be believed in and taken taken seriously, you have to live your values um, and be open about 
what you stand for. And I, I do agree that like actually intent is, is not, is not enough. Um, you know, you have to live that intention in, in everything that you do. I just think by the same token, say like, okay, so tech could do no wrong, but now tech can do no right. So which is sure. yeah, I mean, done by the same exact long. people. So that to me is, is your, um, your point a little is well taken. suspect. Your point Richard, is well you've been wanting to get in there, I think. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I think that tech has done a few things over a 20-year period that has made it vulnerable. The first is it's elevated its CEOs to some kind of Valhalla status, um, along with Thor and, you know, Loki and like this. It's 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 too elevated. And the aided by the media. Hello. hundred percent, yes. Oh, by the way, sorry, the people are raising their hands. We're gonna get to questions very, very soon. So yeah, yeah. stay stay the, there. I think the second point is that um hiding behind a sort of libertarianism about your decisions is not smart because tech should want government to be part of the process of decisions as opposed to making things up unilaterally. And maybe maybe the people who run these companies are smarter than government, but government's elected and government is the regulator. And it's like a seesaw in a playground. If one kid is a lot lighter than the other, et cetera, et cetera, you don't have a lot of fun. And unfortunately, the way the public looks at this now is you almost have an unregulated industry making decisions unilaterally. Look, I agree completely with what Twitter and Facebook did taking Trump off their platforms after January 6th, which was a revolting day in American history. That said, people say, well, they're unelected and they, you know, all this. So I just think in the next phase, tech would be really smart to be a more cooperative with and connected to government as opposed to always saying the Heisman to regulators. I think we should need to separate out here whether we're talking about Facebook or tech in general, because a lot of the specifics you say seem to be specific to Facebook. I will also say the over, the bo board, um, Facebook's board is going to come out with their Trump decision very soon. I'll be very curious to see what they say about that decision and what they say about Maduro, who was booted off, I think, just the other day. And then the fact that folks like Putin are on it, um, and there you see the slippery slope. And by the way, I will say, not to go tit for tat, but I think, and I can't speak for Facebook, I, I'm not in the know, so nobody should make any assumptions, but I think they would be quite happy, it seems, to be regulated. It's just, it seems like the regulars are more, are happier to admire the problem rather than regulate, but we'll see if that changes. Um. I would say that with great power comes great responsibility. And as these companies have gotten so big, so vast, so powerful, it is incumbent on us to scrutinize them. And that is what I believe the media is doing. That is what the government is doing. And, you know, I would agree with Helena's point earlier that, you know, for, for, for too long, I think uh, the press was probably too fawning of technology. Um, but I don't think that's not happening now. Like I just did a show today. We had, uh, you know, a founder on who had just raised money, um, you know, talking about what the future of home fitness looks like. Um, I'm looking at tech meme right now. And, you know, half the stories are announcements, um, Microsoft HoloLens, Apple coming out with this or that. Um, it's really not 
all bad. Um, and I'm trying, I'm going to try to not take anything personally here because I know I don't represent all of the media. You definitely should not, Emily. <laughs> you definitely should not. But I do want to make sure I'm sticking up for my industry and my colleagues, not that you know, nobody is perfect. Um, and when the media certainly is not perfect. But I also think that sometimes perception can be different from reality. You know, I think that's, a, I completely agree with you. And I, you know, Margaret, you made the point um, earlier about sort of the, this sense of negativity. And I think the pendulum has swung. Um, but I also agree with Emily that there is still a lot of a, a lot of storytelling out there that is quite hopeful and positive about, about tech. Um, but it's under a magnifying glass like it has never been before. And, you know, we've seen this happen in other industries. You know, there there was a time when, you know, the big banks could do, could do no wrong. And, you know, then we moved through a period where they could do no right. Um, and, 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 it, and I think it is because people are beginning to understand that these, that, that so much power is resting in the hands of so few people and that is frightening. Um, and so there is extra scrutiny. I think that there's a level of healthiness um, around that. And I think, you know, if you're a company that that has nothing to hide, then you shouldn't be afraid of that, I guess, is what I'm saying. Of course, we want to be really careful and thoughtful about sort of how we um, show up in the world as, as technology companies um, and make sure that we're really authentic. And I think when you look inside of some of the more devastating stories that have um, come out about some companies, you know, a lot of it is depending on sources from inside the company, right? Who are who are leaking, um, and to me, that is as someone who who lived through um, a company that was you worked you know, at Yahoo, which I was such a Yahoo. leaky sieve. I remember it was the yeah. I mean, Margaret, you and I worked together. It was you know the, the leakiest ship that ever sailed the the ocean blue, um, and there was a reason for that. And it, the reason was that there was a lack of um, transparency and authenticity. Um, inside the company. Um, and we were not the same people inside as we were outside. And I think that becomes a real problem. And, you know, you look at other companies that have no leaking problems at all. Like, there was a huge acquisition that happened um, a couple of years ago, um, where the whole company was over the wall and nobody leaked it because they had such a beautiful trusting culture. So I think that's a big part of it. People well, have to begin to understand that like it, the way that you present yourself to the world has to be really truly who you are and where there's discord there, that's where you have problems. And what's interesting, the, the thing that jumped out at uh, out to me from um, Richard's report, or should say the Edelman report, I'm sure Richard didn't put it all together by himself, but was that, um, people seem to trust their specific employer more than media, more than business, more than politics in general. So it seems like some of these cultures, maybe it's just food and beverage, but it seems like some of these cultures are doing something right, um, even though um, general, there's a general climate of distrust. And Richard, I'm sure you can weigh in on this. Well, trust has gone local. So there's sort of three phases. The first was top down, which started with Moses showing up with the 10 commandments. And then um, it went horizontal about 10 or 15 years ago, um, based somewhat on social networks, but also on the theory that, you know, classic authority figures had betrayed us in the Iraq war and in the 2008 recession. And then two years ago, we saw this big turn to my employer. And in fact, 
this year, newsletters from a company are more credible than mainstream media as a source of credible information. That's shocking. And so trust is local. And I think that is a big expectation for CEOs, therefore, to speak up on behalf of their employees. And in particular, tech employees believe that they have the ability to influence a company's policy, like whether you take a contract from ICE or, you know, whatever, that's a deeply, um, I don't know, <laughs> enlightened employee group. That, uh, I think that I, so I I could not disagree with you more on this, and I'm I'm the only one who who holds this position that I know, but I think this slippery slope of running a company like a popularity contest is unbelievably dangerous. And speaking as someone who's been an employer and who is now an employee, I think the thought or the hubris that a CEO could decide like, oh, I speak for the employees with a particular opinion. If you have a company that has more than 20 people, you've probably fucked that up. So I just think this whole like, oh, the CEOs are new politicians. I agree that trust is local and I agree that cultures are very important. Like I agree with all of that. But taking it to the next level where it's like, oh, I now speak for the employees. Like if you run a company of any size, how could you possibly speak for the employee? I just think that's the most dangerous thing on the planet. And I know that I'm the only one who believes that because everybody is doing statement after statement on every possible thing. And the New York Times just did a whole thing about who spoke out on the Georgia voting law, which we can have many, many strongly held opinions on. I do too. But like, that's the, that's, that's how we get measured now is by what statements we put out. And I just find it awful. Um, you know, I, I would actually love to hear Margaret, your view on sort of where the feeling of the sort of lack of trust in media is coming from. I mean, obviously you and I have worked together on stories for a decade. I've interviewed so many people at Andreessen Horowitz and we've covered so many of your companies. Mark was the very first guest on our show 10 years ago. And I'm, I'm sort of curious where this is coming from um, so that, you know, we, the media journalists can better understand, you know, why there is this feeling. So why there is this feeling, okay, let me just, um, I'll, I'll speak for myself, um, which I think is probably the most appropriate. So I think that um, I have worked unbelievably productively with many, many reporters and due to this day, Emily, you're one of them. Um, I will say there has been a, um, a change in in a particular way that is, makes it harder, which is that the, how do I put this? the percentage of questions that are in the vein of like, when did you stop beating your wife has gone up radically. So, and, and those are just uh, harder ones to do or to engage in because there's just no winning answer on, on that one. Um, and then the other thing that's completely separate that I found out for ourselves is that the, there is a lot, a lot of content that people seem to really want and in fact need to do their jobs that's not in the mainstream media. And that's not mainstream media fault, but that is something that we've sort of learned over the last, what, going on 12 years, there's a real hunger for, and that is that is something that we want to double down on. Um, in terms of the questions, I can definitely speak to that. I, I do feel, you know, viewers and readers are more discerning and discriminating, um, especially in, in coverage of tech and, as a journalist, we kind of have to ask those tough questions to give the company or the person 
credibility. Um, you know, nobody wants to see uh, these days, it seems, you know, an interview where we're just focusing on the positives. There have to be answers um, to the skeptical questions as well. Absolutely. Uh, but I don't mean when I say like, um, sort of in the vein of when did you stop beating your wife? Like there's actually, if you think that all the way through, there's there's no actual legit answer to this. That is a winning answer. You either are like Richard Nixon, I'm not a crook, or you're like yesterday. So there's there's guilty and guilty. So that that I think is something that I've observed that has definitely gone up. And I think that part of that is normal. So if you if you are uh, in your business, I, I don't want to speak what it's like for your business, but I could imagine where you get burned one too many times where you write a sort of say neutral to positive story and the company turns out to be, you know, fair knows, you just, uh, you become a little jaded and that's probably a normal career development. Um, and that's all fine and good. And I um, thought John Kerry's work was outstanding, but that's different from having that stance from the get-go. And that's what I was talking about. Um, I'd be, I'd be curious, Richard, to hear how you and, you know, the clients that you work with and if they, they feel the same way, like, are they getting an unfair shake? I mean, I know something that, you know, we do on the show, no matter who it is, right. If it's somebody who's, who thinks Trump should have been banned, I'm asking the questions, well, why, you know, why asking the devil's advocate questions. And then it's the same in the reverse for, you know, the folks who think Trump should have been left on, but this sort of like both sidesing that has been a kind of common practice in journalism to portray objectivity maybe isn't happening enough and maybe isn't enough at all at the end of the day to, you know, take bias out of your reporting. But curious, Richard, what companies are telling you? Well, I mean, um, I won't identify the media company, but um, there was a front page story about a certain company that we work with not paying taxes. And the story was simply bizarre because the company had invested hugely in capital expenditures and therefore it increased its depreciation expense substantially and therefore didn't pay tax. But the story didn't say that they had done a lot of CapEx. It just said they didn't pay any taxes. That's just bad reporting, and it caused my client to go completely berserk, rightly so, and say, <laughs> wait a minute, hold on here, guys. This is what you're trying to incentivize us to do, invest. And, okay, so the rules under tax law are you can depreciate. And so, I don't know. Look, <clears throat> reporting shouldn't be political, particularly business reporting, and it should try to be uh, analyzing whether the company's strategy is correct and whether it's selling its products and all that sort of stuff. It, it shouldn't have as a political lens, in, in my view, anyway. It's just really hard to do, I think, in this super, super polarized environment. Like, I, I don't even know that I can be objective about anything. And, and I, you know, I, anyhow, I'm going to open it up to questions, but let's um, let's keep talking. Do you, So, Emily, maybe tough question for you, not for you personally, but like, do you really think that there are outlets that are primarily objective and like straight down the middle? Or do you think they're mostly on either side? Um, well, I definitely think Bloomberg has has tried very hard to be objective and especially covering the Trump presidency was not easy. And we, as journalists, were always getting reminders, you know, watch what you're saying on social media, watch what you're tweeting, watch what you retweet. 
Um, and we, you know, I was, I definitely had feedback whenever there was a, um, any kind of partisan leaning in a conversation, you know, that felt a little bit too this way or that way, just, you know, make sure you're thinking about that. that. And I'm going to really get to Scott and Cindy as first questioners, but, um, are you an exception there? Because uh, I think depending on who you follow on Twitter, it's quite obviously what their bias is. Um, well, you know, I can't, I don't think I can speak for all of mainstream media. You know, what I will say is that. Well done, Emily. Ma- <laughs> maybe it's, you know, I, you know, there is big variance in, in, in trust levels for individual outlets and we're, we all have a different strategy. Um, you know, I, I will stick with what I said at the beginning that I do think most journalists are just trying to tell the truth. Um, um, and, you know, maybe I'm giving folks too much credit, but, um, I don't believe there's an an intent to mislead or, or, or harm anyone. Um, you know, most journalists I know care very deeply about the stories they cover, the people they cover, their sources, um, and so I don't know. Perhaps it's 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 incumbent on the the, the larger outlets and and the, the people in charge, um, who who are shaping the broader coverage. Okay. Maybe that's what we should be thinking about. All right. Um, to the folks who just joined us, Scott, Cindy, Scott, you go first. Um, please do ask a question so we can answer questions so we can get to as many folks as we possibly can. Go ahead. Yeah, great. I mean, I come from a background where I've I've written uh, for a long time for the Boston Globe, written for the New York Times, Fast Company, Wired, covered tech out in the Bay Area and here in the Boston area. Um, I mean, I guess my question is really, how do we get to more transparency, both from media and from from tech? I mean, I think that um, the sausage making process of how stories get written can be very opaque to people outside of the media. I think also the process of how do you ever get something corrected once it's published um, is extremely opaque. And, you know, most media organizations, um, you know, you literally have to have accused someone of, you know, of murder to get uh, a correction issued in a, in a mainstream publication. So, you know, both, what do you see as, as helping us get more transparency, both about this process of how stories get created, but also I think in tech, whether it's Clubhouse or Facebook, there's so little transparency about the inner workings of those platforms, you know, how the algorithm of Clubhouse or the algorithm of Facebook works, right? It feels like we need to work towards transparency on both sides. And I'm curious if folks have thoughts on, you know, what are some, what are some baby steps we can take? All right, thoughts for Scott? Um, I feel like I should have, we should have invited more journalists to be part of the conversation. Sorry, Emily. I'm going to start calling people up from the audience. Um, Go ahead. I made you moderator. You can do that. <laughs> um, you know, the correction thing that's like above my pay grade. I always try to get something corrected. If there's an inaccuracy, it's like, it's painful for me whenever I see if someone's name is misspelled or, um, or a headline is misleading. Um, obviously I know that that can happen. And we definitely do, you know, put in good faith efforts to make sure that that doesn't happen in the first place and that it get changes um, when it does happen. But I would agree that the, that with the, the lack of opaqueness um, with tech companies in general. And I, I, I would think that any company that wants to be covered in the media should be able to answer those questions. And the story to me will hold more weight if they are able to answer 
those questions. So like, I'll pick on Paul since he's here and he just came on the show. You know, Paul, of course, he's expecting to answer a question about um, how they're going to scale and, uh, you know, the possibility for, for her, there he is. Hey, um, you know, possibility for harassment, how they plan to moderate content, how Clubhouse plans to do that going forward. And he answered those questions very eloquently. Um, and I think the interview was, was better for it. I'll let you speak for yourself, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I like, of course I'm going to pick on Paul. I, just I actually, um, I have to go to a Brazilian town hall right now <laughs> for the whole Brazilian community. If I had a dime for everyone. <laughs> but this is such an interesting conversation. I would love to talk more about all this stuff. Um, I, uh, I agree with what Emily was saying and I really enjoyed the conversation and, and I always, I always love talking to Emily about this stuff. I, um, <clears throat> I, I, I honestly, I shouldn't start talking about it right now because I'm going to have to go in like 20 seconds, but um, I, it's just such an important topic. And I, would love to have more of these conversations because when we think about clubhouse like journalism media it's like it's such an important part of what we want to build like think about telling people about things that are happening in the world having important discussions bringing in people who are experts on these things processing stuff that's happening in the real, real world like this is what journalists do all day like this product is built for for that sort of thing and so I, I'm just, I'm grateful that you're hosting this conversation right now, but I think there's a ton to unpack here and I would love to talk more about it sometime on. Well, how about we make a deal and we'll have you back. That sounds we'll fantastic. About. Awesome. Sounds Good fantastic. luck in Brazil. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, now we need to move faster. Otherwise we're not going to get too many questions. Cindy, please ask your question quick, quickly and we'll address it. And then Rob is next. Totally. Uh, my question is about the, the switch from reporters going from the newsroom to in-house at companies. And to Richard, your point about how brands are now kind of more trusted than news sources. I mean, the newsrooms are getting less populated with reporters. And I'm wondering if there's a correlation between that. And also because reporters are now in-house more, maybe some of the content they're producing actually it appears more trustful just because they're, they're providing that journalistic lens to it. I don't think that's sufficient. I think that the... Um material that's turned out from in-house has to be both sides of a question. Example, if you're at a drug company, the side effects of a drug in addition to the wonderful benefits that you get from taking it. And it has to be third-party corroborated and checked, and it has to have a place where people can, you know, put their own comments and, 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 and in a certain way improve the story. And I'm not sure that's the standard at the moment, and that should be the standard if, in fact, more and more people are relying on it. I mean, Margaret, you should talk because you're starting your own media business. And you know, I, I for one, I for one at least think, you know, the presumption of the media is that you're going to be softball on your tech investments. And so this is your moment. Uh why thank you. Um <laughs> we are starting a media um outlet across channels. So written, we already have a podcast network that we will grow. Um, obviously, we are on Clubhouse and we'll continue to invest there. In fact, Maggie is in the audience. She's going to join as the executive editor. I'm very excited about that. Um, and it goes to the point that I made earlier um, to Emily. It's like there is a thirst for information. Say you are a um, participant in business and you need to understand whether a certain innovation will threaten you or help you or you just need to understand it to see if like what products to buy or who you might partner with or acquire. There isn't that much content out there. And then say you want to be building um, a modern company. 
There's also not that much content for you out there. So we're going to be focused on that white space that isn't currently followed. I'm not faulting anyone for not filling it, but that's just that's just where we're going to aim. And we got this feedback anecdotally loud and clear from, you know, and by the way, not just fellow, um, not just tech entrepreneurs in our portfolio, but like regulators, uh, people around the globe from all over saying like, please give us more content. Like this is stuff that I can use and that I need um, to help me figure out the future. So that's, that is what we're doing. And um, in the entire time that we've done the little that we have done, uh, which is quite robust, um, just to um, answer your softball question, we've had to make one correction. And if you ask my editor in chief, Sonal, um, if I can call her up and say like, hey, can you put so-and-so on the podcast? Um, that is not happening. It meets their editorial bar for um, a story that they want to tell that they think is important for folks who want to figure out the future and how to build it. So there is no soft calling of the portfolio. And when we open up the platform, we will let anyone we think has an interesting point of view um, explain that point of view, whether that is a VC we compete with or a competitive portfolio company, you name it. So that that is what we're trying to do. Um, and it's I'm not sure as, as much competitive with existing media as responding to a need that I don't think is currently being filled. And I'm going to um, not hog the stage. Uh, Rob is next with a question. Rob, please ask a question so that we can get to many more of the listeners. Thank you. Sure. Um, you talked about polarization as one reason for lack of trust in media. I wonder if you think that an additional and indirect um, form uh, or reason for lack of trust is the digital revolution that came out of Silicon Valley. And the thought in my head is we used to have what you could call vertical trust in the elites in media who were responsible for enforcing professional norms of reporting and had a certain credible expertise to offer us. But now as a result of social networks, we have a horizontal trust in being fed and learning through new stories through the people in our own circles. And um, what seems credible to us is what our friends recommend rather than what experts um, curate for us. And so how do you rebuild trust in a world in which social networks are the primary means through which we gain access to news in the first place? Well, I will also say, I mean, I would, I would frame it a little differently. Like we, back in the quote unquote, good old days that were so fantastic. We had like three people at three networks telling us what the news was and what to believe. And now thanks to the internet, um, whether we want or not, we've kind of unleashed humanity. And it turns out we don't always like what we see, but we have many, many, many more options to figure out like what we want to believe and what we don't want to believe. So the, the level of personal responsibility has just gone straight up in terms of handling all that quote unquote information slash mis misinformation. But I'm not sure the alternative going back to three people telling me what to think and what the news is, is really what I want. I wasn't suggesting that. I, I would agree with you that, you know, democratizing voice is in one respect a really good thing, getting away from three white guys on the three evening news channels um, to a world in which many of us are producers as well as consumers. I'm just suggesting a, another side of what that democratization has also brought about. Namely, we have to rely on our friends as signals of quality rather than on um, a few people who are doing the work for us. Great. Margaret, I'll Margaret let again. someone I, in, weigh in there, and then we get to the next question. Richard, you want to go ahead? Margaret, 
I think you have to be careful about the ability of the audience to make decisions about what is and what isn't accurate. I mean, I, I know that libertarianism in Silicon Valley, it runs very deep. I mean, you and I sat in the meeting with your boss and, you know, we had this debate and I don't necessarily think that a sort of free market for news is exactly what is going to lead to the best outcomes. And I think, by, and the reason I say this is it's a 10 to one, people share fake news over real news because it gives them social status or it sounds more sexy or whatever it is. And look, I don't want to sound like a scold. It's not the point, but there is a huge role. Well, you did Emily. just tell me that I have to be careful. So I do. I'll just I do point that out. Be, no, no. I think you have to be careful about the idea of the you know, wisdom of crowds. I think that is demonstrably proven to be false. That this, hey, Richard, information, I, this, information, I this information has absolutely crippled the United States in the last two elections. It, I it, never said stunning. the words wisdom of crowds whatsoever. I, what I did say is like, I think that we've unleashed humanity. And it turns out we don't quite like what we see in, in us and many of our fellow humans. Uh, I, I have not mentioned the word wisdom at all. Emily, you want to say something? I, yeah, I mean, I would add that the, you know, obviously the internet has lifted barriers, distribution, uh, you know, and, and entry is, is just not an issue anymore. And so there's been an explosion of news and views and you don't have the mainstream media playing the role of gatekeeper anymore. The, the former editor of the FT um, wrote in depth about this. So there is an irony in blaming the mainstream media for the way that they're telling stories, but it is also harder than ever to tell the story that you think needs to be told. And uh, it's, it's sometimes it's, it's hard to be loud. Um, and I think that's, you know, we, the media journalists are fighting a lot of different forces and voices in trying to tell our stories um, and fighting often it is fighting disinformation and fighting misinformation and you know perhaps that sent some networks and some journalists leaning too far in the opposite direction but it is I believe in pursuit of telling the truth got it um, we'll get to Andre I hope I'm not butchering your name Andre please ask your question and I'll get more yeah, folks on the uh, on the stage thank you yeah the name is correct so I uh, quick note on, uh, on Richard's uh, dynamic that he has expressed like uh, going from social media to trust in, into employees and trust to employees versus uh, uh, media basically I, I found myself a lack of expertise in media whenever it comes to topics where I'm expert myself and it like behind a couple of years sometimes and it's really sad to see to see that so I don't know how you can address and reconcile this but uh, the, my question is like there is a truth and facts and then there is a storytelling which is interpretation so why don't we go like uh, listing facts like we didn't pay taxes here, but we invested here and list those facts in the beginning of their any kind of message. And then we tell the story, but and and this story probably um, I don't know. Andre, what's your question? Sorry, My question know. is how do we reconcile facts with storytelling? Because storytelling is interpretation, but truth is something else probably. 
Well, that's a big one. Thank you, Andre. Anyone? I'll take it. I mean, I think the responsibility of the media is facts. Um, and storytelling is a means of getting facts across, not the other way around. And if, in fact, it's a political agenda that is driving storytelling and the facts have to fit the storytelling, that is exactly the opposite of building trust. And, and that's the perception in the um, broader world at the moment, <coughs> that chasing clicks is somehow the end of the game. And that is deeply destructive of the media's role as arbiter of truth. And we're, we're in a complete battle for truth and an information bankruptcy. Those, those are those are really demonstrable. People don't know who to believe anymore. And so they're getting their information from real Donald Trump or other direct sources. Um, I'm Richard, you're so uplifting. I want to hear what Helena has to say. Yeah, well, I think um, a couple of thoughts. I think that the person who asked the question is right, that we need to lead with the facts. And I think as you think about sort of the entire kind of platform um, of, of ways to get your message out, earned media is a really important part of that. And I think when we get to a point where companies are unwilling to engage on that, then there is a void to be filled that gets filled by someone else, right? Where... Um, if you're a company who ha who feels comfortable engaging, you can insert your point of view into into a story. Now, it is not always going to be the story that you want, and believe me, we do a lot of educating around the difference between you know what is a correction and what is a disagreement on the premise of a story. Um, you know um, that we have to kind of teach the founders that that we work with about. But I think companies have a choice about how they want to engage. And I think there are some companies that are that are at a point in, in, in their brand evolution where they don't feel that they need to engage anymore because they have enough authority as a standalone entity to tell their own stories on, on their own terms. I, I believe Andreessen is one of those companies where they're just at a stage where they have so much equity in what market, frankly, has helped them to build that people really listen to what they have to say. Not every company has that luxury, right? To be able to have a platform of that size with that much authority. But I do, we believe, we talk to, to the companies that we work with all the time about really thinking about the total landscape for communication and that earned media is part of that. Um, and that there is a decision to be made about whether or not you want to engage there. We tend to encourage our companies to engage because it means that they can shape their own their, their stories with their truths, with their facts, right? Um, but there's more than that, right? There's many channels where you can tell your own story. I would say something that we haven't really talked that much about tangentially here um, is that uh, we think that the companies that are going to win in the future are mission-driven companies who approach the world from a place of authenticity um, because they are the they are the companies that are going to win the war for talent. And a lot of the storytelling that we help companies with is directed at current and future employees because the war for talent is going to mean anything, everything in the future. Um, and in fact, with some of our client, clients, you know, a key metric that we track is like how much um, 
interest is there in, in applying to the company? Because that tells us so much about whether or not we're telling stories that people believe are interesting. Um, and I think that audience in many ways has become one of the most important audiences. Richard was talking about this sort of like how local is so important and people listen to kind of their, their own CEOs. And internal communications has become one of the most critical things that you can do as a company to make sure that you're aligned, that there's a lot of trust and transparency inside of the company. And those are the companies that are going to win. All right, uh, let's move on to uh, William. William, please ask your question. We have many questioners. Thank you. Yes, hi. Um, my name is William Garcia. I was actually a journalist for about 25 years. We're talking about the heydays of Peter Jennings. Um, I worked um, at ABC uh, and also started in the local uh, Miami market. Um, I guess this is just an overall question. I just joined you, but I'd like to get your opinion of what you feel uh, is the job of a reporter nowadays, because it seems that every time a reporter is reporting a story, there's a lot of editorial, a lot of opinion, instead of what used to be very much the fact. When I used to cover a story, whatever it might be, we were always responsible to obtain both sides. Now, because of the new, say, um, of how everything is set. You have Fox, you have ABC, the difference, they're targeting a specific market, uh, whether it's the right or the left. What's happening is a lot of individuals are not seeing both sides. What do you think is the solution when now media is more targeting their narrative to their viewers? Emily, that sounds like something that is yours to answer or try? Right. Well, you know, I I would definitely, <laughs> I do believe that we always try to sell both, tell both sides. I'm not sure every network necessarily feels the same way. I can't speak for them. You know, I think one thing that, that could be helpful, this is an idea that was raised, is that the more... Um, that we create more spaces for the editorializing that perhaps some journalists might want to do, like blogs and newsletters and, you know, not the evening news. Um, you know, I, I think trying to figure out uh, ways to put up some guardrails around what is um, being disseminated and how is really important. And just, you know, making distinctions between who is a host and who is an, a contributor um, and not blurring those lines. You know, I would, I'm glad Helena made the point that sometimes um, corrections are just a matter of opinion, which I would agree. Obviously, there are corrections that happen where there's a typo or uh, something is truly wrong. But more often, it is somebody doesn't like uh, the way the headline was written for whatever reason. And it's not necessarily wrong. It's just that they don't love it. Um, I would I would also like to ask Richard, you know, what are the incentives for companies to provide the balanced content you're talking about? Um, and, and, and how do we as journalists then trust that content? I mean, a good example is Walmart talking about supply chain in China, because, you know, they have a lot of experience in that. And it's a sort of subset of your China coverage. And they have every incentive to be accurate in um, what they're doing, I think, because then you can rely on them as a source and their employees can rely on them. Um, this is definitely a work in progress for companies, though. 
it is a fairly primitive stage, honestly. Not that many are doing it and doing it really well. I think this is something that where credibility, you cannot have a shortcut to credibility. It's just, you have to work on that over time. And if, as, uh, if you do content on the company side and you end up having to do a lot of corrections, just like media, you don't have credibility. <laughs> whether, and doesn't, that the, credibility, doesn't that credibility come in part from earned media? Like how yes. Absolutely. yes, it does for sure. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think that that's I couldn't agree with Emily more. Like when we think about earned media as kind of part of the mix for our companies, so much of that is 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 about like a third party validator, right? As opposed to like you know this is a customer acquisition tool or or how many people maybe think of earned media. We really think about it as a way to validate you know, what, what the company believes about it. So do other people, you know, agree with this premise that this company has? So we think it is incredibly powerful in that way, right? If you think about your candidate who is in high demand because you are, you know, a developer with a unique skill set and you can choose any company in the world, well, what is the first thing that you're going to do when you're talking to companies? You're going to, you're going to, of course, you're going to go on their website and follow them on Twitter and do these things, but you're also going to search um, for news stories about them. Um, and that is going to influence the decision that you make ultimately about whether or not this is a company that you want to join. Okay, guys, um, let's give Steve the question. I want us all to think about like, okay, so Speaking of personal responsibility, is there something that each of us is going to go do differently to try and rebuild trust? Um, but that's for later. First, I'm going to turn it over to Steve. Steve, ask your question. And good to see you. Thanks, Margaret. Thanks for inviting me up. Um, I just had a, a quick question, really, and and uh, really for you, maybe, and maybe Helena. Media is a really broad term, and um, I just wondered whether you regarded Facebook and Google and, and other tech platforms as media companies because they are filtering, disseminating, presenting, curating content in the same way a media owner does. But um, obviously Mark Zuckerberg has said, always said that he doesn't consider himself a media company. Um, but it has been, it's, it's a platform which a lot of information gets disseminated on. There's loads of disinformation on there, which, is, which the platform was really late in cleaning up. And I didn't see Facebook putting corrections in. They allow people on the platform with anonymous hey, profiles. Are you um, done with your question, Steve? Because yeah, we... yeah. But I was, I was just wanted to say, journalists, I'm, I'm sticking up for journalists a bit because Emily has been on stage on her own doing it. And journalists stand up under their own byline, under the media owner's byline, and they stand up there and they and they make their pitch, right? And they, frankly, their the business models have been decimated by Google and Facebook, and that that's 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 life, right? But it's easy to sort of um, have a go at the media. But what is Facebook's a tech company? Is a media company, isn't so, it? So okay, Steve, your your question is is Facebook. Uh, uh, platform or media company helena do you want to take that one thank you steve. yeah yeah i think what steve was asking is you know whether or not we consider facebook a media company and i would say um we we talk about earned media um you know sp specifically because what we're really talking about there is kind of the original content that journalists are are building um and look from a personal perspective i deleted my facebook account a couple of years ago when i saw 
you know, the most popular stories being shared. That, that for me was the breaking point. Um, and I think we, we you know, the onus is, is on yeah, us as, as a society to, okay, to make sure that people understand that popular stories on Facebook are not necessarily, you know, what, what they should be reading and they're popular for a reason. And that's a lot of education that needs to happen. But in, on your question, Steve, about like from a business perspective for us as archetype, do we consider Facebook a media platform? No, we don't. We're really talking about earned media. Now with that said, we think great earned media stories, we do want to amplify those across social channels. So we will encourage our customers to, you know, share interesting um, stories about themselves to amplify them on on Twitter and Facebook um, and elsewhere. Um, to me, that it is not a media company; it is a distribution system. Um, I yeah, I mean, just um, as uh, like putting myself in Helena's shoes. Like, do you pitch Facebook and get a story? No, no, effing way. There's there's just no. Does Facebook have a lot of sway? And what people believe, um, absolutely. So, yeah, it's um, it's not a it's not a media company in by my definition, which I'm sure is probably some inflammatory thing to say. Um, and I'm not even going to do the virtual signaling of like I deleted my Facebook account because I didn't. I just saw Jim Kerstetter's dog, but that's how I use Facebook. I don't use it for politics. Um, I wonder if we should close with: Is there anything that we can each do to help? bridge the gap and rebuild trust in the world? It's a tall order, I know. Um, well, I guess I would say as a journalist, you know, I am I need to earn my credibility just like I think companies need to earn their, you know, media, right? And so for me personally and professionally, it would be continuing to try to tell both sides of the story, to give, um, uh, you know, space and time to um, different kinds of companies and people and people who, you know, uh, you know, it's something that's very important to me and to Bloomberg who, who look and act and sound different too. Um, you know, how we tell the story is really important and who we choose to help us tell that story is very important. And I, I think, you know, it's something that I do believe most journalists are, are trying to do. And, you know, in terms of what news organizations can do better, they're, you know, editorial layers are very important. We have many of those. There are definitely differences of opinion. And what you see is the result of much discussion and debate often. Um, and I think making sure that we have those checks and balances in place it is, is, is important at any organization. Margaret, and I Emily, I just want to say, sorry, I just want to say you've been leading the way and figuring out, sorry, the dog just came up, figuring out how to choose the right people to tell the right story. So uh, thank you for doing that. Thank you. We're trying. Margaret, I, I would just say, um, I think it's really incumbent on PR people to get their clients to talk. And I really don't like what Amazon's doing in its ad hominem kind of attacks on Sanders and Warren and, you know, through Twitter. And I, I just think it's not becoming of their status in the world. And so you and, think and, they, and, and, they should be more classy than Elizabeth Warren? I I'm think just... that they don't. I, I mean, listen, if, if Senator Warren wants to engage in attacks of a personal nature, you don't have to respond in kind. And I also think that the idea of evading so-called ordeal by the media because, you know, you don't talk to the media is ludicrous. I mean, you, you, you want to be a trusted company, you have to go through 
that process of the media evaluating who and how you do your business. All right. That was very fiery. Helena, what about you? Yeah, I actually agree with Richard um, on that. I think we, we're in a funny position in that we sort of live halfway between both worlds, right? Uh, we're working with with um, companies. We're also working with reporters, and we're trying to help both entities to be successful in what it is that they set out to do. And I think, you know, because we have that unique position, perhaps we are well suited to try to help to de-escalate some of what what is happening, um, and to do some education, kind of on both sides, on why there's fear from companies, um, and then you know, and and why you know a reporter asking a tough question is doing their job, and and that's okay. Um, so I I feel like that the onus is on us to be that go-between to understand both um, both sides of it, and to try to do, you know, education um, and make it more comfortable for people on both sides. But look, I, I mean, ultimately, what I believe is that as you think about a, a company's like entire mix of how they show up in, in the world to be highly credible, earned media, I believe is a, is a really critical piece of that. It's not the only thing, um, but it is an important one. Reporters will continue to do their jobs. And I think as companies, we can decide whether or not we want to participate in those stories, but we can't be mad when those stories don't turn out the way that we want them to. I would 100% agree that the, I, I do believe that more access leads to coverage that uh, companies find, will find more favorable and I know sometimes it's scary to put yourself out there and maybe you look at the news and you think it's all bad and you wonder if you're going to get a fair shake but to me the the more access the better the relationship the better the reporter and the journalist and the news organization understands the story to me you're going to get a more a more fair hearing and a story that's more representative of what you probably hope it will be and there have been many times where you know I can think of an example I, I won't say the company but you know we had you know one person on telling their side of the story, you know, we ask for a statement, we hear nothing back. The company is upset that that person was telling the story. And I'm like, okay, well, can you put someone out there? I'd love to have you on to talk about this. And the answer is no. And so what can, you know, what they, they really can't expect more than that. Um, and so I, I truly believe that access and building relationships help. I do a ton of conversations on background, off the record, you know, just working towards, um, that that ultimate uh, conversation that might happen on air or whatever ends up uh, happening in print, and I, I do think that those are those are really important. Got it. Thanks, guys. Uh, I sort of agree with all of that. I had a just different take on the general question, which is sort of what we can each do. And I, I've done this um, for the last however many years. I don't want to be specific because that'll give away my politics. But I've I tried to, in good faith, engage with other points of view that I don't agree with um, because I think the the whole polarization question is so fundamental. And I think if we just keep going into our respective boxes, um, it won't help us. So I, I try to engage with in good faith with other points of view and really try to figure out like, okay, why are people thinking or saying or voting or whatever the way they do? So that's my personal take. Um, You're here. With that, we have hit the hour Richard had probably did have to dash, I'm sure. Um, Emily, Leanne, Helena, thank you so much. Uh, this was a lot of fun. I'd love to do this again at some point. Um, to those whose questions we get, didn't get to, maybe next time. But um, really, thank you so much for the discussion and the debate and um, all of your thoughts. Oh, thank sorry. Thank you. Thanks, Margaret.
Thank you. And Thank I should you say so much. we are off next week because it's my kids' spring break. Um, and then we are going to be back with a very interesting topic with awesome people. Jim Messina, who was an advisor for the Obama administration, and he was known as the Obama's, um, the Obama White House's fixer and Adrian Durbin, who did policy at Lyft and is now at Greenbrier and um, Risa Heller. So you can imagine what the topics will be. It'll all be about um, this and the intersection of politics. So thank you. And hopefully I will see you in two weeks on Wednesday. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.